Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself self-guided public land elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get right into it. So, guys, we're sitting down recording with a good friend of mine I've known for over a decade. His name is Santino Castellanos. He resides in Westminster, just outside of Denver in Colorado. This guy is a family man. This guy is an elk killer. This guy is a phenomenal archer, hard worker, very talented, uh, works in media, just got a great story. This is for all you fathers out there who maybe you're like me and you can't wait for the day to take your kiddos elk hunting, or maybe your kids are at the ripe age, or maybe you still hunt with your kids. Uh, this is all about that, and we're going to learn how he got both his boys, bulls this year, including himself. So they stacked them up. Their freezer is swole, and get to know him, his faith, uh, a little bit of his testimony, that kind of vibe as well. It's just, uh, yeah, Santino's a good buddy of mine, so it's just like a nice little conversation you get to kind of listen in on and uh, swap stories about this year. So it's a good one. If you want to learn more about Santino, you can check out his Instagram and his website. Those are in the show notes. Let's read out a couple of discount codes, and let's get right into today's podcast. So Vortex Wear, that's Vortex Optics. They make a line of clothing that you can use for your shooting, for your training, and your hunting. Hashtag fit for anywhere. Use discount code ELKSHAPE, get 20% off. Thank you, Vortex, for all your support. Wilderness Athlete, ELKSHAPE30 will get you 30% off your first purchase. And it looks like a lot of you have done that. So hopefully you're addicted to the Hydrate Recover, Energy and Focus. They got some great clean products from a company that is very clean and not a marketing company. Northwest Retention Systems out of Washington, they make custom gun chest holsters the scout that's what i use for my glock and my 44 mag use the discount code elk shape and you will have no shipping and handling the lead time is very short and the guy will hand make it for you stowaway gourmet they're out of oregon elk 10 will get you 10 percent off the best tasting freeze-dried food out there this food is not shipped in these chefs are making it on site and it's going right to the machine and then right into your belly i think you'll dig it black ovis get a discount code Elk shape to save 15 to 20% off most items if the discount code does not work. 
they have certain items that are flagged. Pick up the phone and call them and tell them you're an Elk Shape Podcast listener. They'll hook it up. Lakewood Products, they make awesome bow cases. Elk Shape 2020 will get you 10% off. Climate Sleep Systems, Elk Shape 20 will get you 20% off their pads, their sleeping bags, their tents, etc. Elk Shape Camps, we have one in Seminole, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, Marysville, Ohio, Boise, Idaho, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Denver, Colorado, and Ogden, Utah. All those camps and registration can be found at elkshape.com. Check that out. We also have our online digital programs, and we've got a, a new one um, that I'm cooking up, pun intended. I'll tell you all about that after the show. Let's get in it with Santino. You guys listen to the Elk Shape Podcast. I appreciate your support. Here we go. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Uh, awesome. Uh, I got out of a dentist appointment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I had one scheduled. Well, who, who schedules a dentist appointment at seven in the morning? Uh, probably your wife, maybe, or you were doing it and you didn't pay attention. Yeah, no, I was like, they wanted to schedule it during hunting season, September. And I was like, Oh no, October, mid October after Montana closes. So I scheduled like six months ago and Sure. They sent me this uh, email that I didn't read, and then I looked at it this morning at like 5, and it said, like, if you have any symptoms of coughing, because I got a cold right now, that all these, like, COVID rules. So I was like, you know what, guys? I do have a cough right now. My nose is runny, but I also have little kids. That's just their little Petri dishes. So uh, they just said, okay, we'll, we'll bump you back a couple weeks. So it's cool. I got to podcast with – Mr. Santino Castellanos. Oh, perfect. You say that perfect. Yeah, dude. So we're going to do this unscripted, just conversation. Perfect. Been meaning to get you on here. This is, uh, we're wrapping up season three of this podcast, and I can't believe it took this long to get you on. So uh, let's just see where it goes. And it could go anywhere. Perfect. Knowing you. So give everybody... uh, give everybody the little background on you and uh and then maybe talk about how we met yeah so um i'm based out of colorado uh just in the front range in lafayette uh i'm a native i grew up in the mountains and well i'd say the mountains of leadville colorado because that's where my mom was born and raised my dad was uh born in denver but they you know god brought them together and uh he had a passion for the outdoors so i spent a lot of time as a kid, started going hunting with my dad when I was around five years old, and then he hung it up about a decade later for a few years because my grandma passed away, and it, he took that pretty hard. So I started going hunting with a guy from church uh, that was a bow hunter, but I at the time I was just trying to see something die. I thought we were the most cursed hunters on the face of the planet just because I'd never seen an animal uh, harvested. And I was like, but I, I loved hunting. I, I, I used to watch all the pre-hunting movies before season would come up when fall was in the air that's like what i live for but we would only go for the weekends and then he uh he showed me a special spot where i could learn how to uh while i started shooting cow elk every year and pretty much became a meat hunter until i started bow hunting uh when i was 20 i think i was 23 years old or yeah i was 23 years old when i found bow hunting and i i uh got this man crush or as my wife would uh, define it, bromance over this guy named Dan Staten. And he had a business partner, oh, Kenton Claremont, with Train to Hunt. And I thought that was the coolest thing because at the time I was running fitness gyms. So I'm like, how cool is this? Here's a guy that's like, you know, he's in fitness. I'm running some fitness gyms. But 
he's also a really, really badass bow hunter. And I was just getting into it. So you were the, uh, one of the few people that when I first got into it, that I wanted to meet. And I actually reached out to you, uh, stalked you on social media, which I think at the time it was just Facebook, uh, Instagram wasn't blowing up yet. And, uh, you, you and I jumped on a call and I kind of shared my vision and what was like on my heart as far as like what I wanted to do in the outdoor space. And I, I remember you cut me off pretty quick and you're like, dude, you're going to be just fine. Like you're a business guy, you'll be, <laughs> you can come into this industry. And then, you know, a few trade shows and a decade later, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a wild ride, but yeah, that's uh kind of the short and brief on the hunting side. But yeah, I just, uh, I, Dan was one of the first people that I reached out to when I decided that I wanted to do something other than run gyms and I wanted to try to make a career and a lifestyle uh, in the hunting industry. Well, the last time we talked was on the phone. I was driving to Montana on a solo elk hunt just a few weeks ago. And I, we were just catching up, which we, you know, we just stay in touch. Um, and you're the kind of guy where like, if six months go by and I haven't talked to you, it doesn't matter. As soon as we talk, we pick up right where we left off. And I really appreciate that, Santino. Like, that's important to me because, you know, I'm not the world's best communicator, but we always just seem to, you know, reconnect. And uh, we've shared camp together. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I think you've bear hunted twice with me, and you've also taken my dad mule deer hunting. But we were talking on the phone, and I was like, Hey man, I'm about to lose cell service. I'm hitting a pass. And you were like, Oh, cool. Well, let me pray for you real quick. Not, Hey, can I just, Hey, let me pray for you real quick. And who's going to refuse that? And you prayed for me and uh, a safe trip and a blessed trip. You prayed for me to get a bull, which I actually usually don't ask for that. I always just ask for God to like guide my arrow and keep me safe and watch over my family while I'm gone. And I just felt like and some people might not like this kind of stuff we're talking about. And hashtag, I don't care. Uh, I just felt chills while I was driving because I felt like the Holy Spirit. And he was just like a powerful prayer that I don't You don't know this, but it just like gave me chills. And I was like, man, I love Santino. And I just want to thank you publicly. Like, thanks for praying for me, man. My hunt did go really well. I did get a bull the first day. I did stay safe. I was hunting by myself in some pretty rugged country. And my family was watched while I was gone. And um, just want to say thank you for that and segue into it would be a shame for us to not kind of go a little bit over your testimony. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of people, well, some people have heard it and the, and the ones that haven't, uh, you know, the short version of it is, is that, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I, I think a lot of people, because I will drop prayers out like that whenever I just feel like I should and I, yeah, I think that uh, one of the th one of the mottos that I've always lived by is that tomorrow's not promised, and you just never know. And again, like we, we love to hunt, we love to do all these things, but man, you could walk out your front doorstep and get hit by a car. So I'm I'm a big advocate, and sometimes I lose sight of this is that you know we're not no no one's promised another minute in their life, so you got to enjoy it to the best and and live your life to the fullest. Uh, you know, with what what you have in front of you. So the short part of my testimony is that, um, I got into some trouble when I was in high school. I was, I was an athlete, pretty good kid. Just, you know, there was some, uh, definitely some dad issues. And I know a lot of guys go through that. So this isn't like just so everyone's clear. My dad and I, we have a, we have a good relationship and 
you know, if you follow the breadcrumbs of why people are and what constructs them, it, it, it's really not, you, you really have to just look at how they were brought up. And that's probably one of the biggest focuses on why I try to be the best dad that I can be. And like anyone that watches my social media, that's more than anything. I just, I love spending time with my sons and now they're, you know, young men. But when I went through that, just my dad didn't, at the time, he didn't know how to be, you know, a dad because he didn't really have one. I think his dad left when he was eight years old. And then his mom married some abusive guys that, you know, just he went through his stuff. So obviously that rolled on to me and I was pretty angry. And one of the things that I, how I used to take my anger out was fight. And I got in the wrong fight, beat up the wrong guy. And I was looking at actually going to jail for a certain period of time. And uh, the the short of it was, is that I, I don't ever, at the time, feeling lonely, living on my own and being through some of the stuff that I went through in my life. I just, I, I, there was nothing and it sounds it sounds dumb because at the time I'm only 17, but I had lived, a, I'd done, been through so much in about five years because of the guys that I was hanging out with. Most of the guys that I was hanging out with for, at the ages of 12 and 13 were 16, 17, and some were even over 21. Uh, and that's how I got into drinking and partying and all that kind of stuff because I had I was hanging out with the people that could supply all those things. So just kind of running super wild, and it caught up to me because I had seen a guy hit a girl at a party and. Uh, you know, beat this guy up. And that was the saving grace that he actually hit her and he was over 21 and, and brought booze to the party. And uh, I was sitting at uh, Jefferson County, uh, just outside, well, right off the front range. And that was one of the times that my dad had showed up in my life to bring me in because they had questions for me. And they said, well, this guy's, he, he's in the ICU, like you, you, you really messed him up. And if, uh, if he doesn't make it, like you're, you're going to go to jail, like for murder. And for sure, you're going to do some time for assault. And that was a huge, huge charge. And this is one of those things that at the time, uh, I didn't know how to take that. And the only thing that I thought of is like, I'm going to jail and I, I, I don't want to go to jail. Like, I don't, want to, I don't want to live even a year or two in jail. And if it's, you know, the worst case thing that could potentially happen. So I, I uh, went home. I uh, wrote a letter. My my dad was pretty pissed off. Him, him and my parents, they weren't around when I did this. And uh, I had a forty caliber six hour that was like my sidearm at the time that I would pretty much just take anytime I went camping or hunting. And uh, I loaded that gun and just, you know, just said a prayer and said, you know, felt like my life was over and put the gun up to my heart, pulled the trigger, firing pin, uh, hit the round. I didn't know this at the time. It just clicked, but firing pin hit the round. It just didn't go off. And because I was such in a dark place, I was, I reloaded the gun and I had this cheesy lava lamp next to my bed and I saw the casing of the, the first round that I tried to do that with. And, uh, you could tell that the firing pin, uh, was hit. And at that moment, I just, I don't know, I like not to make it sound weird or any of that kind of stuff, but like you said, hashtag, I don't care. Just something came into that room and gave, brought peace. And I was always a guy that was a hustler. I was an athlete, I, but I was just, I was lost. I didn't have like direction uh, because I was just flying by the seat of my pants without a lot of guidance. And again, being stubborn, I just did what I wanted to do. So I just, I just waited and, and this, this, uh, I don't know, this presence came in. And I would say that's really when I gave my life over to Christ and that I just started praying, hadn't prayed and cracked the Bible in a while. And I just started really waiting on something to happen and it was about a week later that the lady that um, the detective that was looking into this story 
they didn't hear about the side that I was protecting this girl, yada, yada, yada. So she went to bat for me and she gave me a second chance. And basically there mm -hmm. was, this is something there, no charges were brought against me, uh, because there would have been charges on him. And, you know, obviously the guy, he didn't, he didn't die. He ended up coming through, but you know, he just, he'll, he, he he's still to this day, not the same person. Like, you know, I, I, I know that there were, it, it was just, it was just a bad situation, but it summed up to being kids at a party and things went too far. And, uh, it's something that, yeah, you know, there's probably, you know, there's definitely regret in my life about it, but I think that regardless, that was a turning point for me to have a second chance and go a different direction. Two months later, I meet this beautiful blonde hair, blue eyed girl named Cassandra. And, uh, she was one of the only friends as a girl that I had in my life. I usually, if I ever met a girl, you know, we were hooking up or, or I didn't want nothing to do with them, but she really became a really good friend uh, for me. And then it was probably about six months later, I'd asked her out and, you know, did things the old fashioned way that I, I normally didn't do. And 19 years later, uh, we're, we're, you know, we've been married for 17, but we've been together for 19. And, uh, she really just, you know, I'm a big dreamer and I'm a guy that like has these big ideas and she, she does everything she can to keep my feet planted to the ground. But when I met her, that <laughs> God, God used her to, make me feel like I could do anything. And one of the first things that I was able to, cause I, at the time, you know, we got married really young. We had Aiden right out of the gates. We, I was 19 when we had Aiden and she was 18. And then a week later turned 19, just to give you an idea. And then we had Jeremy when we were 21. So good Lord Santino. I'm a almost 40 year old with two little ones. Me that young, I could not be responsible. I guess you just, I guess you don't have a choice, but I just, I know there's a lot of people like you, but man, I could not do that. How you just forced to grow up like overnight, I guess. Right. Yeah. And part of wow. it, part of it because of like be, being what I had went through from 13, I was already making, I, I was working a job 30 to 35 hours a week. So I'd, to give you an idea, like in those days I'd go to school and then if I was playing a sport, I'd go to practice. And after that I'd go home, eat dinner. And then I had this telemarketing job that I was getting paid under the table for, for several years. Cause I wasn't technically old enough to work, but I, 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 I needed to make money to survive. Um, just because of the lifestyle that I wanted, or I wanted it, I just wanted my own independence, but I was, I had been working for a really long time. And then growing up with my, with my parents, they always had little side jobs or they clean buildings. So I, I started doing that at a, at a, at a super young age. So I, the work ethic and all that was there, just the direction wasn't. So when I met Cassandra, I say that she was, she's pretty much my compass. And she, she was just gave me direction and made me feel like, well, you can go do anything you want. You don't need to just go do the sales job because that's all, you know, you can do this, this, and this. And I, you know, college school, like th that wasn't, that wasn't really in the cards for me, especially with getting, you know, having kids so young, but I found, I started working out at this gym because there were a few years that I was just, there was so much like I was there, I was pent up. I needed a release and going to the gym and hitting a heavy bag again. I grew up doing some boxing mm -hmm. and some stuff like that. It was really constructive for me. So man, I dropped, you know, some weight. I was like back in my fighting shape again. And what was really cool about that is that the owner of that gym came to me and said, Hey, I want to open up four more gyms and I want you to be the guy to run them. And I was just a member. So it was really, really crazy how that took over. But that was the first time that I felt like, okay, I'm doing something that I'm actually passionate about because I like working out and I, lo I love fitness. And now I'm going to get paid to do it. 
and that was a huge turning point for me that started me into a, a whole different path and making me feel like, oh, you can actually go make a living doing what you love. So, yeah, yeah. Fast forward, well, that was I was twenty three, so that's fourteen years ago, or you know, thirteen years ago. And uh, yeah, it's just things just <laughs> things you know ramped up pretty quick, and where I'm at now, it's uh, it, it's unbelievable, to, unbelievable to be working and doing what I'm able to do, what I'm able to do. It's not always, uh, I think when people look at social media, as you know, they think that all you probably do, Dan, is hunt and run up mountains, but they don't see the part of you being a dad, uh, you know, home, and then even all the obstacles and stuff that you jumped through because you were running a gym. And then I know that you started doing the firefighter thing, and then you finally just, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was when you, you said, no, I'm just going to be doing elk shape full time. And I'm going to run after this with everything that I have. And it's finally to a point where I could do, and you're not a greedy person. You're, you're somebody that you want to be able to do what you love and support your family, take care of your wife and your kids, and then just be able to do what you love. And like, I'm, I'm, it, it's so exciting to see where you've come and what you're doing right now. I love it. Dude, I appreciate that, man. It is a, it is a little bit of a fluid struggle, which I like. Um, it changes day to day. But uh, I don't really know anything different, and I know you don't know anything different. That is something that we definitely share in common is just I, I just hustle at everything, and you're a hustler, and that's, that's all we know. One thing we also have in common is we're just not looking for any handouts. Like, we're going to earn it, and I like that about you. I want to get into your hunting pedigree, but more importantly, I want to talk about uh, this season specifically with Aiden and Jaron and your two boys, like – going over their stuff you experienced some pretty monumental moments as a dad and in a hunting career but let me give you a little bit of a proper introduction don't blush santino is absolute animal murderer in a good way uh if i had to bet on anyone i would bet on that santino is going to get it done any tag anywhere and I wouldn't say it all comes down to just you're a great archer, you're great at scouting, or you're just some fitness guy. It's just like, I don't know what it is, Santino, but there's something special and it's 100% undeniable. And don't blush, but like, it's the truth. You always find success and even in some really difficult situations. So you are super blessed and I know you would give glory to God. And more power to you, but uh, at the end of the day, you're doing some things that lead to success, and it leaves behind clues, and I want to get into those. Um, when I first met you, you were just kind of starting out with archery, and you've had an amazing decade run as an archer. Uh, you've taken a lot of different species, a lot just unbelievable, super – I don't know what the right word would be. It's probably just bankable that you're going to get it done. And uh, with that being said, tell us about your learning curve, albeit short. I know there was some struggle in there. And talk to us about some of your best practices behind the scenes that we don't see when it comes to archery and, and, and learning about animals and finding them and, and getting it done on public land. Sure. Well, Dan, I'm going to have to hire you to uh, do my eulogy if uh, you end up outliving me. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you. I'm going to I'm gonna save that. I'm going to take that piece and just save that and put it in my phone when I need to pick me up. So I appreciate that. Um, there you go. Yeah. There so you go. I, I think, yeah, you and I, 
there's a lot of things on how we mirror th- like with our work ethic. And I think the biggest thing is, is, um, when I found bow hunting that there, it, it was weird. Like I always wanted to do it, but I just didn't think that the community in Colorado existed until I met a few people. And when I, the people that I met, like one of them was Levi Morgan, who without questions, one of the best archers in the world. I met him because he was coming through Colorado to uh, do, or he was filming his hunting show. And my buddy at the time was one of his camera guys. So they tagged out early on some pronghorn up in Wyoming. And I was able to spend a few days with them and, he was one of the first people to encourage me like, Hey, no, you, there's some shops around here. You need to, you know, look into Phil Mendoza and no limits archery. And, and, you know, Phil's while you had a, uh, your workshop over there. And I think that when I found those guys and they were uh, welcoming and it was just a really, I would call it a brotherhood. I felt like I walked into something like, man, I've been missing out on this for the last few years, but I was so glad to have found it. And it, I have a, I have a tendency that if I'm going to do something, I don't ride the fence. If I commit to something like any, I I'm all in and almost to where I get obsessed. Well, I get obsessed about it and that's just, that's just how I am. So when I started shooting a bow, it wasn't even hunting season. All the, you know, elk, everything else had already passed. So it was right into 3d winter league stuff. And within a few years I was shooting ASAs and I was doing that circuit. And I, and ASAs for people that don't know, it's one of the, largest 3d circuits they're usually out in the midwest and down south like in terrible places like west monroe louisiana that are just super hot 95 percent humidity in Ju- july it's just terrible <laughs> but i i for there for a season i was all about the tournaments and winning because i like to compete i and for me i think archery was one of those sports that you could you really could compete against yourself. But then when I found out about these tournaments, you're competing against everybody else that's there. And it was just, it was super, super fun. Uh, But through that, again, guys like you and, you know, Cam Haynes and watching some of the fitness elements, I I really knew. And just because I grew up in the mountains, like you have to be in shape to walk after any wild animal. Uh, But they, they are just one of the hardest things, even with a rifle to try to hunt especially after they've been spooked public land, you know, it lends itself to so many challenges because you have so many guys walk in the woods and now it's even crazier because of all the media and, and it's growing, but it's just, it's become tougher. So you always have to be sharpening your skills uh, to make that better. I, I, I think that the first year I went archery, um, went archery hunting, I'll never forget it. I felt just this is how I defined it. I felt like it was a huge failure because I didn't kill anything. And I, I told myself, this will not happen next year. Then my second year, it's, it's not going to happen. And second year I go out and I shoot a bull. And then in here in Colorado, you can also buy a B license cow tag. And I shot a cow and then I shot a few mule deer. And then I just started like stacking it up. And part of going into the hunting industry, that was something that was also given to me as advice that if you want notoriety or you want to prove that you deserve a seat at the table, you have to, you have to kill animals. And I went on this rampage to were and full transparency. I was killing so much, uh, that I, I lost my passion for it. And I, again, like, because I get obsessed with things that I, I put hunting in front of other things like family, God, and it, it stopped becoming fun for me. Just, I have to tell people that because I think sometimes we want something so bad, but then it's like, once you get there, if your priorities are wrong, then it just, it's not as fun. So I had to re-gauge 
that and 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 just get everything back in line. But being successful in the field for me has always been not just putting time into fitness and shooting. Like I I started out with shooting, and then the fitness I was already doing that side of it. But then once I start learning how to break down animals and and carrying them out, then that's something that you have to train. In my opinion, you have to train all year for it's not it's not something that you just want to like a lot of guys will try to go and train a few months before the season starts, but it's something that you should always try to be maintaining and same with shooting. It's something that I, I disagree with guys that are like, Oh, I can just pick my bow up a few months before hunting season and, and go out. Can you do it? Yeah. I've got, yeah, I, I got into guiding really quick after I had some success on a few, you know, I think after my third or fourth year of bow hunting, I started guiding and you see guys that just, they'll go to Phil's, they'll buy a bow, they shoot a few arrows. And then, yeah, if they're on a good hunt and they get the right opportunity, can you kill elk that way? Sure. But I, it, it's something that it's not until you hit that animal that you lose is where that really bites you in the butt. It's different when you can say that you've spent your whole year devoted and dedicated and you know that if something goes wrong, it's just because it went wrong and that's going to happen. And if it hasn't, you're either lying about it or you haven't hunted with a bow long enough. And that's, that's just part of it. But the other part that I really started putting a lot of focus in is that one of the game wardens down where I hunt, um, when I and also where I was guiding at at the time, he was huge in animal biology. And when he would talk, it was one of those guys that you really just wanted to get out a piece of paper and a pen and just take notes. And the, the way that he knew elk biology, especially in the unit that I was hunting, it, it, it was, it completely changed the way how I thought about hunting, how... Like if I'm going to go hunt a bull in the afternoon, different spots I'm going to be in, different tactics I'm going to try. And, in a, you know, within a few years, like I think even I've been hunting the same spot almost for the last decade, minus when I, I'll draw a tag here or there. But you can really pinpoint those animals and not much really changes unless the the herd just completely moves somewhere different. But if you go into an area and you devo you devote yourself to it for a few years, you can figure it out. And that's one of the things that I, I, I admired about you when you took me on a, my first bear hunt uh, there in Idaho. We went out there and just all these honey holes that you and your dad knew, I was blown away. Like it, 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 it wasn't overwhelming, but it was just like this is the level of like this is how I need to know my unit. And because I remember we'd go 15, 20 minutes down one road and you'd go up these drainages and you had between the baits and everything that you had set up for bears, like you're like, yeah, this is one of the draws that I'll hunt elk in, or I'll take this trail, and this goes back here, here, here. It, it, it's just crazy, and I think that's really more than anything. It's knowing terrain, knowing animal biology, and then it, it it's just a must that you have to know how to shoot, and you have to be in shape if you're going to go out there and try to backpack in for several plus days. So I don't know if I answered all your yeah. questions, but that's just that's just kind of a that like when I run through stuff like that, that's I, I put a lot of time. I think the animal biology for me is it's one of the top things that I focus on because shooting and all that's already more than anything. It's second nature and the animal biology is starting to become that unless I go try out a different unit. Yes. And I think, you know, not everybody's got a game warden that's like a slash biologist that can drop knowledge bombs. Um, and so I, I don't know where people can gain that kind of knowledge besides just getting time in the field, spending time behind the glass and watching from afar so these animals are undisturbed and just know that it's part of a journey. It's part of a process. It's not you're going to not learn everything and you'll never know everything. But if you have that attitude of just always I'm, I'm out here as a student 
and I'm always learning. I think that'll help, you know, find more success. And it's undeniable you can shoot a bow. And I like that you started out in kind of target archery world. I wished I had, looking back, I wished I'd had a target bow first or shot winter league first or got a coach first, but I didn't. I'm the guy who just got a bow and taught himself all the wrong things. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things we do at Elk Shape Camps. And we're coming back to No Limits Archery in 2021 because that's one of the best archery shops I've ever been to. You already know this, but Phil Mendoza is a super special, special guy. Uh, and he's created a team that's undeniable. And, uh, yeah, just the level of technical knowledge there that you need will really help avoid some of those easy mistakes because man we work so hard for one shot opportunity and sometimes you don't even get that one shot opportunity but knowing the animal and when to strike or when to close the deal and then taking full advantage of that one window of opportunity and executing it's it can never really be mastered there's definitely a lot of things you can learn along the way. And I think it's so, I think that's why we're all hooked on just getting as close as we can to animals. Um, one thing that I want to talk about besides just hunting is I want to look at the hunting industry a little bit because I want to look at it through your lens. You're somebody when I first talked to on the phone was basically looking to get in. And then you definitely dove, like you pulled a Santino and you dove into the deep end with no regrets. And and I want to figure out what you did, what you learned, highlights, lowlights, and then I also want to graduate into what you're doing now. Okay. Um, real quick, though, on how do you find a game warden uh, comment or somebody that an animal biologist if you talk to the state or the DNR, there are a lot of uh, wildlife biologists that you can get in contact with with units. I actually did that when I went into Montana, and it wasn't a game warden. I just, but if you you can look up wildlife biologists in certain areas, uh, and usually a game warden is a good pl place to start. Uh, definitely here in Colorado, they can tell you who the biologist, wildlife biologist, is in that area, and talking with those guys and really just learning. And I think the bigger thing is is just learning why elk do what they want to do from especially now that i'm trying to get into harvesting more mature bulls learning what a certain bull like and i'm not not every elk's the same but there are consistencies with big mature bulls that don't leave drainages unless they have really really hard pressure and if that's what i know a lot of guys they want to go out and shoot the big the great or the big great big bull but to do that you have to really know what they're doing throughout the year know what they're doing in the winter be out there scouting and looking at them when everyone is you know eating turkey and you know putting back on pounds and drinking beer and doing all that kind of stuff don't get me wrong i like doing all those things too but i have learned to get back out in the field even after the season is over just to watch what they're doing and that's something that i I, I, think, I think a lot of people miss that yeah, I, I like what you're saying. And I think that a lot of people talk to biologists and ask the same generic questions. So if you are going to get a biologist on the phone, they've had so many phone calls from hunters and they can give you the same canned answers. So you best be armed with some very specific questions and show that you have done your due diligence before you get on the phone with any biologist. And I like game wardens because they're out 
perusing the country. They see where animals come from. They see where pressure gets bottlenecked. Uh, they, they understand what hunters are doing tactics wise. I know that my dad spoke to a game warden that we elk hunted in this unit. It was new to us this year. And this by this game warden was like, Hey, you guys can, you're going to see a lot of elk. You are going to see a lot of people. Uh, these elk are not going to respond to vocalizations like per se what you're used to. They, they're very educated. Um, you guys are going to want to probably camp on your backs unless you're really fit and can cover a lot of ground from your truck. I mean, these were just like pretty basic tips, uh, but we took them to heart because the guy had been the game warden there for 20 years. And uh, that helped kind of help make my e-scouting plans and figure out, okay, where do hunters generally congregate? How do they head into the mountains? Where are the elk getting their feed? Where are they going to want to bed? And and I've talked about this before, but it's just you're absolutely right. But, yeah, man, doing your due diligence is so important. So It takes out the guessing game, too, and wasting a potential few days trying to figure out that's your strategy. The game warden pretty much just gave it to you, and you can start, you can start mm. fresh on day one executing a good hunt plan every day, and that's, that's huge. So tell us about your uh, industry journey and, and kind of what you did there. I find it very interesting. Yeah, so um, after I had had a few phone calls, and then I went to I think at the time what was that uh that event that you that I'd met you and Kenton at the first time it was um, bowcast at the bird. Oh yeah, that's like basically total archery challenge, but it wasn't called that yet. It was uh, Anthony Dixon and Sean Munson from FMP and uh, Neil Aroni started uh, bowcast at the bird, which was like one of the first podcasts ever for hunting. And then they created that uh, actual shoot on the mountain at Snowbird. Yep. So uh, I that was one of the first archery events I went to. Following year, I went to my first ATA show. And um, ATA is the Archer Trade Association show. And I just, I, I went with a buddy, uh, the same guy that I was talking about earlier that uh, was filming for Levi. And he just invited me to go and check it out. He goes, I think you really need to go to the show. You need to just go and shake some hands. So part of that show at the time, it's where a lot of guys that have hunting shows or magazines or anything that they're trying to sell uh, to companies to endorse or advertise with, that's a play, That's a really good landing spot for those guys to show up at a show like that and pitch you know, a variety of different marketing managers that represent different brands on what they're doing. Uh, the big show after that is called Shot Show, and that's usually in Las Vegas every year. And uh, so... Immediately, I went to both those trade shows that that first year, and pretty much just I walked in that room and I started listening to conversations. I, I I sat in a few meetings that I really didn't belong in, but I was really able to hear like, okay, this is how this works. Like, if you start talking with somebody, or you know, like, or you have something that you want to push, but you got to have a product. And I didn't know what that product was going to be at that time, but I was, it really gained my interest because I thought, wow, you know, there's. I just felt at home. Kind of like when I walked into Phil's shop, I'm like, this is something that I can do if I wanted to. So it was I, It was the first time I met Cam Haynes. That was one of the guys I wanted to meet in person, and I got a picture with him. But the buddy that uh, was talking to Cam, I interrupted their conversation. I said, hey, I got <laughs> to head out, but Cam, can I get a picture with you real quick? And the guy that took the picture, his name is Willie Schmidt. Well, Cam asked me, he goes, or he goes, hey, man, what part of uh, Colorado are you? And I said, Westminster. And Willie was like, I'm in Westminster, Colorado. And then he said, let me give you my card. 
and Willie Schmidt is the host of Pure Hunting. And uh, when we got back, he came and worked out at my gym and or got back into Denver. I'm sorry. After I'd left the trade show, we get back into town and we go to lunch. He came and did a workout and then we grabbed a bite to eat after that. And at the time, this is like my second year of bow hunting. I had had a great season. I had filmed some of the stuff that I was doing. I made a couple little promo videos just because I, I, for whatever reason, my hobby at the time was documenting through video what I was doing in the field. And it's just something that I, I really, really enjoy doing and taking photos. And he said, man, I'd love for you to come and film a hunt with me up in Wyoming. He goes, but I need you to meet the company that I'm doing production with. And so I, I went to True Sight Media's offices down in Littleton, and I met the owner of that business. And it was crazy because um, in a short, like very, very short period, he just, he called me, I think a day later saying, there's no doubt that you can run a camera, but I need a director of sales. Like, and I said, well, what does that mean? He said, I need you to represent not just Willie's show, but we're producing a few other shows and I want you to go sell them. So the, the following year, it was the first time I went to a trade show, man, I was so nervous. Cause I, you know, to me, sales is sales, but to, to try to talk to these brands and people that I've looked up to for a long time and sit in meetings and have these discussions. Uh, I, that's pretty much what I did for the next five years as I went and I raised advertising dollars for a variety of different outdoor shows. And that came to a halt. I think, well, I was probably four years into it because the market started shifting. A lot of companies were not spending money on television because there were guys that were starting to go online and, and still get the amount of viewership and things started moving digitally to, you know, different space. So fighting for dollars became one of those things that was really, really tough. Like it would be like you and me competing for the same dollars that we were going after the same bow company. Like Hoyt might have a hundred thousand dollar marketing budget. And if there's 30 guys that want to try to get that, well, that's three grand a pop, but for some guys that's not enough or, or whatever it is. So it just became really, really competitive. And then the market was shifting as far as what was deemed as valuable uh, on where companies should spend their advertising dollars. So there was a big transition period where even on the production side, it was getting tough for producers to maintain. And mo just to give you an idea, most TV or hunting TV show hosts that are just starting out, they, d they can't afford a guy to go and sell for them. That, that's just an added expense, so they go do it themselves. And that was one of the things I felt like Willie and I had that was really special. We were like the one-two punch. He could just be a host. He didn't have to sell himself. I could be the guy coming in, dropping numbers, and doing all that. And for you know three, four years, we had a really, really good run. But as the, as the model started changing, uh, there was other things that were changing too, like within my own personal stuff. Like I, I'll never forget that through the hunting seasons that I was having, companies were talking to me and reaching out saying, Hey, like, what are you doing? Like, we're, we're, we're watching your social, we're watching what you're doing out in the field. And you know, why don't you do a hunting show? And I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't think a hunting show is what I, I, I just, I knew what went into it. I knew the amount of money and investment that went into it. And I, there was just, it just was something that I didn't want to do. I had been on Willie's show. We actually filmed the show at bear camp, uh, up at your place there in Northern Idaho. And, um, it was one of those deals that like it, that part for me was fun, but I just, I also didn't want to make that part of hunting my job because I am the worst at looking mm -hmm. back and telling a camera guy like, Hey, are you recording? Because if I see something, I have a shot. I'm taking it. I'm not waiting for nobody. <laughs> oh dude. I am also the worst. I had a cameraman this year. Um, and so many times I was like, dude, you're not going to get the shot being that far away from me. 
and he was a hunter, so he like didn't want to mess up my stocks in on bulls. But a couple of different times, I was like, Jake, you're not going to get the shot. Like you got to be on my hip, and almost like t- I'll have to tell you to to slow down or, or or chill out. But never did. He was pretty worried about messing up my program, and every time he had to go, he left me in Idaho because. And we did not film this, and we should have because it was kind of drama. But his dad is fell and basically almost broke his hip. And his dad's really quite a bit older than most dads. And he he had to drop everything and go. And as soon as he left, I killed the bull the next day. And then when he came back, he filmed me in Wyoming. And he was doing such a good job. And then he had to leave to go hunt on a hunt in Montana. And as soon as he left, I killed a bull the next day. And we never, I never got any of my shots with a cameraman. So it's hard to really hunt with a cameraman. I actually have a lot more. I, I've done it in the past. It's fine. But man, it was just a fresh reminder this year of like hunting solo without a cameraman is a lot easier than these guys. Like I think about Cam Haynes, man. People clown on him. I like making fun of him sometimes too, but like. Honestly, he kills some big bulls with a freaking camera crew. Yeah. And he hunts similar to I do as far as not making vocalizations. That is I got a lot of respect for that. That's super hard. Well, and it, it again, it depends on the environment and what you're doing, but like I think people like even some of the places that a lot of guys hunt, you know, if they get to go on these really big ranches that have bulls like there, I've filmed hunts on ranches like that, and they're they're still elk. And you know, when you're talking a place that's thirty plus thousand acres, elk are still being elk. All they did was jump the fence from one side to the other, from public or from private. They're still hard to kill. And yeah, to do it with a to do it with a crew, it's tough. Uh, when when there's more that are there that and with less pressure, I'll, I'll put it this way: with managed pressure it becomes a lot easier, but the guys that do do it and do it well, like I'll, I think uh, Joe Rogan did a cell phone video or one of the people that were there, they filmed one of, or they filmed Rogan's uh, bull that got hit. And that was really cool. So it just, it just depends on, you know, the companies you work with, what they care about. Some companies, you know, they, they want to see that because they want to show the product in action. But anyways, kind of with the shift of, what I was involved in, I just, I realized that I, I, what I, I guess what I started feeling is that companies were more interested in having guys approach them with ideas on like, Hey, how can, how can we create content for you that you own? Meaning like if I went to Hoyt or if I went to Sitka or any of the companies that I've worked with saying like, what can I do to make content for you? This is, this isn't about Santino. This is about I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna be in the field X amount of days next year. I'm gonna be doing these hunts. And what is there an opportunity for me to be able to create content for you per DM or whatever the amount would be? And you put budget into that. And a lot of companies that I started going to with that model, it's like the light bulb went on. Things changed. And for me, it was fun. Mm. It was a lot more enjoyable uh, because after you know, true Willie ended up moving to Montana, but there was just there was just a point there where he couldn't justify as a business guy paying me what he was paying me. And just because the dollars were getting more uh, spread thin and f- 
focused in other areas, it just became really tough there for a while. And I helped out a few other guys as well. And it just, it was really, really hard to try to sell something that either didn't have the eyeballs or again, it was just that same model. I felt like I was doing the, just like a hunting tactic. I'm going to go up here. I'm going to do the same thing I do every year, but it's, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm not going to change my plan. So I, I had to change my plan. And essentially what I've been doing for the last, well, we'll take a quick detour right there. So I, I was offered a job at Outdoor Sportsman's Group. So Stan Kroenke owns that, owns the Denver Nuggets, but he bought Outdoor Channel, World Fishing Network, and Sportsman's Channel within three years. And I was offered uh, a job in managing all the hunting shows. So guys like Willie, they buy their airtime. So, you know, if a guy has a decent production and he can, that that's how it works with hunting television. Like if you have decent production and you're doing everything, you know, that's all on the up and up, obviously, and uh, you have a decent show concept, you can go buy your own airtime and start your own hunting show. That And it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Like the network's not going to turn down your dollars as long as you have, as long as you meet their guidelines and their criteria. So I was selling airtime back to those guys, but then even the the model there was getting really, really tough. And in two years, it was I loved it. It was a great job, made some great people, but I had not taken a job in a long time. I've always been a guy that's pretty much worked for myself or worked directly for the owner of a company. And again, their their numbers were off. They laid off. It was over like 60-some people in a couple months. And the day that I was flying out for a dull sheep hunt that I won that you called out at the Western Hunt Expo, the day I left for that hunt was the day I found out that my job was in jeopardy. And that was really, really tough to go on a hunt, mental, have the mental space to try to overcome that when I have a camera guy, I have my wife, and we're going on this. I've never been to Alaska, and now I'm headed up there to go do a hunt, and knowing that I'm probably going to come home and I won't have a job, that was that was difficult. But uh, when I got back, they, they tried working out a few different things with me and it just didn't work, uh, trying to put me in a different position. And I just said, you know what? And even again, Krishander keeping me grounded, but also being my compass said, you just need to do your thing. You don't, if you do your thing and you, you keep pushing on media and creating content, like what you actually love and what you're passionate about doing, you'll do fine. And then that's where I came back and stepped full time back into out of bounds. And that's, that, that's still to, to this day what I'm doing, creating content, you know, helping brands and doing some consulting work within that, primarily in the outdoor space. But I've branched out just because uh, when COVID hit, that, you know, there, you just got to you just got to hustle like we talked about earlier. And that's what I do. Definitely. And you are uh, doing great. You're working with some really cool brands and you're still able to kind of center it around the lifestyle that you want to lead. Uh, so. Some of that stuff can be seen on your Instagram. I'll obviously include a link in the show notes to Santino's IG so you can kind of see some of these images. Uh, dude, your photography, videography, and editing game has stepped up considerably. Is that just a process that you've worked through? Um, is it a matter of just going all in and getting the right gear? Uh, some of it's got to be having an eye for it. I think having an eye for it, like you definitely have an eye for photography. You can just see when somebody takes photos without experience. I think that's where it starts. So I, I know that my eye was always there and I'm my biggest critic. I feel like when I get a picture and I'll do some editing or turn stuff around, I don't feel like, I'm like eh, I don't know, like, or there's too much of a filter. There's too, it's over edited or whatever the case is. I don't think there's really ever truly a finished product, but one of the contracts that I took on last year, or no, I'm sorry, two years ago, 
Uh, the church that we go to, our pastor wanted to start a podcast, but he wanted to start creating content around this. So to keep, like, just to give you perspective, the church that we go to, it, it is a mega church, but they have a bunch of different smaller campuses. But I actually took Jim Bergen, who he's the pastor at the church we go to. I took him on his first elk hunt about eight years ago and just helped him out. And him and I really connected. And I always tell people, you really want to get to know somebody, take them on a mountain. You'll know everything you need to know, know about them. Um, as far, and so him and I became really good friends and he always just, he had this opportunity, he put it in front of me, but that church, they have hired their media department, like to give you an idea, like they, one of the guys that's their head editor used to, he, he worked for a huge, huge agency where he cut and edited several different TV shows that were like on CBS, ABC, like just big, big network stuff. So, and even at TrueSight, we had guys that came from similar backgrounds. So one of the things that I did, it wasn't, I wasn't getting paid to do it, but I would spend extra time just like I did with everything else. You, you find people that are what we would consider an expert or further along in their journey with more experience than you have. And you just sit down there and just try to be a sponge. So I wouldn't ever say that I'm the best editor, it, but when I started to learn how to edit, because again, when I do things, I don't have somebody I can pay to do that. Uh, you jump into it, you start learning it. And now my son, my oldest son, Aiden loves to edit. Like it's one of his favorite things to do. He throws his music on and he's just, he has that mentality of like an editor where he can sit in a room for several hours and scroll through footage. I, I struggle with it. Sometimes I like it. Uh, most of the time I don't. But when you, when you start working with people that are way more advanced than you and you take notes then it can help elevate your level if you can retain it, right? Like if you can retain what they're teaching you and apply it. And then you're in the programs every day. So while I was doing this through the church, I was working with these guys every single day, looking at cuts in editing software. And it's like anything else. It's like having your bow in your hand every day or having a pack on your back every day. You're just going to get good at it or decent at it um, regardless. So that, that for me was really a huge uh, learning curve. And it was because I found the right people that were super talented and gifted and just spent a lot of time with them. Yeah, man, I like your vibe. I think I think everybody's interested in photography, videography a little bit nowadays. Everything's digital. You can self-publish, which is why magazines are struggling. And there's still some good magazines out there. I get a few still. But uh, it's a, the digital age changed, like you mentioned earlier. And no one's getting in your way. Like You can literally self-publish anything you want. You can do it right there in your social feed. And uh, but before that age, you had to... Hope that an editor liked your story and would buy it, um, or you had to get your videos on a DVD or on a TV show. Now, it's limitless, and so digital era is cool. It's uh, it's interesting to navigate the job title that I give myself, and I don't know what you give yourself at the end of the day, is digital content creator. And that's a weird title because people ask me, my wife, what does your husband do for a living? And she's like, she was telling him, oh, he kind of elk hunts for a living. I was like, don't tell people that because that's like, that's the little bit of what I get to do. Like tell them I'm just tell them I'm a photographer or tell them I'm a blogger or something. But what do you tell people you do? Uh, well, I just... Yeah, for the most part, digital content creator comes out. Uh, but I, you know, I tell them that I, I really try to do. I do a lot of, um, well, 
I guess, social media marketing. And when, you know, that's a bigger, broader title, but it's because there are brands that'll bring me on to not just create content, but manage it, distribute it. And, uh, yeah. I, I can, uh, hats out of the bag. I was able to, I'm, I'm going to be doing all the Hanwag, uh, content creation and, uh, managing their social, uh, moving forward. So I just, that, that deal actually just went through two days ago so I can announce it, which I'm super excited about. I've been, uh, wearing Hanwag boots and, uh, a lot of the Fial Raven, uh, bottoms they are one in the same company. They're all, they're all owned by Phoenix outdoors, but I'm going to be working with those guys pretty closely. So it just, it really depends because from creating content and managing all that kind of stuff, I do a lot of consulting. So I, I've been hired on to help guys build their business models. Uh, but that's also just something that I used to do prior to being in the outdoor world. And I, I just kind of like have a niche for that. So it's tough because when you're the owner, you're the janitor too. So you just wear a lot of different hats. So sometimes it's easier to say, you know, I, I run this outdoor marketing, you know, business and our primary focus is content creation. So is Hanwag, uh, they do footwear. What else do they do? So Hanwag, they, well, they, they are, uh, they create boots for not just hunters, but like, nope, you're good, man. So they are, uh, they are probably one of the most premier backpack companies or well, backpacking boot companies and clothing brands. So Hanwag and Fial, they're, they're different brands, but they're all owned by the same entity. So like Fial Raven and Hanwag are pretty much the same, just different brands, right? Under the same umbrella. So Fial Raven creates, sorry, some of the most premier mountaineering clothing in the world. And they, you know, they're, there's, um, they're out of Switzerland, but you know, some of the stuff that they do is just super, super technical. You'll see a lot of their pieces literally at, um, you know, at, at Everest, any mountain climb, anything that you see mountaineering wise, you'll see Fial Raven pieces. And so it's very high end, but really, really good stuff. Like guys like Aaron Snyder um, and a lot of people locally. What you know, the only the only reason I ever found out about him was because of Aaron, because he had these really cool like hiking pants on. He goes, "Oh, this is Fial Raven," and that's how I found out about him. And Fial Raven uh, means Arctic fox. So they they are uh, that's oh. that's kind of the main um, co- you know parent company of everything. But then they have had Hanwag boots. And they make, now they're just starting to get in synthetic boots, which is great for, you know, guys that are above timberline and doing really, really steep stuff with a, with a good foot shank and all that. Um, but then they also have leather boots and those, it's just been, it's been a, a boot that when I tried on day one, really, really liked it. I liked the fact that they weren't, they didn't have like a huge presence in the outdoor space. Cause I like finding for me, I'd rather find a company like that. That's trying to grow into that where I can align myself with them and we grow together then just sometimes sometimes it's hard to go after the big known brands within the hunting space and think that you're even going to make a difference or you're just another person that they're working with. So th- this is really cool because they, like Donnie Vincent, it, it wears a lot of their stuff. Like on the Fial side and on the Hanwag side, he wears a lot of their, a lot of their gear. So uh, as far as like what I have planned and what we're going to be doing here soon, it's, I, I'm very, very excited. Very, very thankful for the opportunity to uh, be working with these guys, and they're literally ten minutes from my house. Their their U.S. headquarters are just right down the street from my house. Oh, that's really nice to have them right there. Uh, so, Fial Raven, uh, they not really known for their hunting side. Is that somewhere? Is that a direction that that brand is trying to get into a little bit? Like, will they have a Fial Raven outdoors, or you know how companies will kind of have like like Under Armour did that? What what are they going to do? 
Yeah, so what I know, as, as far as right now, Hanwag, they do, well, Hanwag and Fial, they do make hunting apparel and, and boots for sure. Like they, they are catering to that market. It's definitely more on the European side. So European upland stuff, they actually have their own hunting line for that. Just so like okay. if you went on their website, you will see it. But now they're bringing a lot over to the U.S., so they're going to start pushing that a lot more. Their boots are super reasonable. They're not going to be, you know, anything crazy over five, six hundred dollars in that two to four hundred dollar range. They have a great line of boots that you can look at. And uh, on the Fial side, they, you know, their bottoms. A lot of guys here we hunt in those. Uh, they have really. One of the, it's their Bisco light trouser pant, which is super nice. They have like the zip side downs where if you need air conditioning, when you're doing some of those early season hunts, it's one of the, my yeah. go-to pairs of pants that I wear all the time. So they are definitely going to start pushing into that market even more. So they, they went to ATA two years ago, set up a booth and uh, it, it, it was incredible. The response that they had. So Hanwag itself, just on the boot side, they have been, booming and starting to really make a splash in that market so they need to put some focuses on uh social and, and their own uh what i would say their own original content and that's what i'm going to be doing for them for the at least for the next year and hopefully uh more years to come okay well i just followed both of them on social just to keep up and see uh when you're do the one that says uh, so it says hanwag na that's north america that's the one you're going to want to follow got it uh, okay I can see a difference in the brand already just from the page. It's amazing how you can notice things like that. Uh, that's cool. Uh, well, I'm excited for you, man. That sounds like a cool thing, and I think you're the right guy for the job. Uh, this is where I wanted to, to kind of finish the podcast. This is like the meat and the potatoes of the podcast was 2020 elk season. You had some monumental moments that uh, we got to talk about. So I'm going to stay out of your way kind of set the stage and then share not only your hunt, but the boys and, uh, we'll, we'll end it there. Okay. Yeah. So this year I drew a coveted tag here in Colorado. It took me 10 years to draw this unit. You and I talked about it. Uh, first off, it was a great unit from a scouting perspective, saw bulls everywhere, found bulls. Uh, what I didn't know about this unit is that's pretty much where they winter and then migrate over into the pi private ranches that surround it. And, uh, don't get me wrong, there's elk there, but they're just, it it, it would be far-fetched to say that's where they rut. Like, I think they rut on the edges, and then you're, you're stuck in a position where you're really hugging fences uh, on some of these ranches where, you know, they have majority of all the the, the cow elk are at. And that's, that's the thing. If you're going to go out and you're going to try to get on a big bull, you're going to try to intercept them before they get to the cows. And uh, can you do that? Sure. But it was really, really challenging because the amount of tags – and the amount of pressure in just a few concentrated areas uh, made it really, really challenging. And there are there are some spots that you can walk that, and you can get away from a lot of the other guys. But you're hunting really, really dark timber. These bulls, I, I don't want to say they're call shy, but when I was in there, they just were still in summer mode. Like the bull that I ended up killing, which I, I out of fifteen, I, yeah, it was fifteen elk hunters, I believe. There was five cow hunters, cow only, which doesn't make any sense to me. But then there was five muzzleloader and five archery uh, elk hunters in there, and I was one of the five archery guys. I was the only guy to take a bull out of there, and that that was super sad because some of those out of staters that drew that tag put sixteen, seventeen points into this unit. But um, the first morning, my buddy Steve uh, Fernandez, he he 
was the one that introduced me to this area because he knows that I want to shoot more mature bulls. And he said, there's some really, really big bulls. It's going to be tough, but you should come down. I think you'll do okay. First morning we had 12 bulls in one drainage. And when I, Aiden and I had been down there while with my family two weeks before that, the week before that, and then now a few days before everything, um, you know, before we, we went in there and we pretty much had these bulls patterned. I think with, within that first morning, had not I, I would have been very close to getting a bull right out of the gates, uh, day one or day two. Problem was, uh, there was two other guys that knew about that drainage. Well, everyone knew about that drainage, but they hunted it wrong. We didn't communicate. We were doing the, well, I found elk. I'm not going to say anything. That's, and I, I, I regret that decision. I should have went to those guys the night before in camp and said, hey, listen, like, there's a bunch of bulls in here. There's a few that I'm looking at. and I think if I would have done that, I would probably just had a, uh, the, this story would have went down a lot different, but the short of it was these guys went up right the gut of this drainage and they didn't even see what happened, but they, you know, the wind was blowing up and it's pretty swirly down there. And I think it was like six Oh five. So I can't even see my pens at this point. I hear Steve hammer a bull call and I'm looking behind me where Steve's at. I'm like, why are you, why are you bugling? Why are you talking right now? And he's pointing and there was, there was this big, like mid three sixties bull running up the hill to the private. And it, you know, for him at the very bottom to get to the top of that fence took him probably about, I don't know, 17, 18 minutes to get to the top and jump over the fence to where I'll, I never saw him again, but it was one bull, two bulls, three bulls, four bulls by within 35 minutes of us hunting in there, 12 bulls that were in that drainage were gone onto the private never saw him again. <laughs> Super frustrating. Didn't see, didn't see an elk for like six days. I think after that, didn't see one elk and the, the elk I saw six days were on it, or six days later was on our way to town off the road on a private ranch. <laughs> so it was just super frustrating. Uh, Aiden had to get back home because he already had been taking, he took the first week off of school to come help dad. So I took him home. We did a job and then uh, I ended up, it was the weekend, dropped him off, got kind of reset, saw, said hi to the family and then went back down there two days late while well, we had just got that snow that hit, uh, here in Colorado. And it was, it you know, the temperatures were dropping. So I found some tracks and then finally got on another group, of, a bachelor group of bulls. And I had tried pursuing this bull, uh, the first morning and just couldn't get around. And I ended up coming down the wrong drainage. But I saw those bulls, and it was actually a really, really good thing because when you start dropping down to these drainages, what looks like it's going to be easy 500 yards away ends up turning into a jungle of oak brush. And I, I was very thankful that I just didn't go in there and blow them out because that's exactly what I would have did. Uh, so yeah, went back to camp, took a nap, got all reset. I said, I'm going to go in there this afternoon. Sun was coming out, so a lot of those elk were sitting out all day on south-facing slopes warming up. And when I went back in there, it was like 4 o'clock or – 350 something like that and first as soon as i crest over into this bowl there was like one bowl two bowls three there was nine bowls in this drainage and i was like okay and this is a completely different spot that i had just winged it on and the the big bull that i ended up taking he was he was feeding up this ridge and he got to this high point and he literally bedded down in the one pocket that the oak brush didn't go above like center mass of his body and i'm like I can probably kill him in there if he beds down. So he beds down and I'm looking at my clock. It's like 430. I'm like, it's going to take me at least an hour and a half to get all the way around there. So I ended up 
running up this drainage as fast as I could. I say running, but it was really just hiking fast with a few little jogs in the mix. And I'm side hilling and trying to get around, trying to be quiet. But I'm at this point, I'm on the other side where he can't see me behind a different ridge. And I'm just working my, my whole way all, all the way around. And um, I finally come up to where I think I'm within a few hundred yards of him. And then I drop my pack. I just I don't ever take my boots off, but I, I waited until I thought I was like within a hundred yards and I took my boots off and then I started walking. It was, it was awesome because the, the little point that he was on, there was really no brush. It was just all like rock bottom, like shale rock. So I was just walking on this mud from the snow melting. My feet got soaking wet and I saw this rock where I'm like, that's the point. He's right below that. He'll be within probably 50 yards of that. So I get up on this little rock ledge. And I'm looking down and it almost feels like a tree stand hunt because the the slope is so so steep. And I could hear another bull moving around. I could hear oak brush just kind of, you know, moving off his body and, you know, just cracking because where he was raking, a lot of these bulls were just kind of, they were still trying to rake some of the velvet off. The wind starts to change after about 15 minutes of me sitting up on this rock. And I'm like, okay, this isn't good. It's, you know, it's probably, I don't know, 6.15 and the wind starts moving down and I'm like, I'm running out of time. I have to make something happen. So then I hear this like little snort and I look down and I'm like, holy cow, that bull's only 15 yards. Like he's right below me under this tree. He tucked himself under this tree and I grab a rock and I throw it up as high as I can below him. It probably rock landed, I don't know, 20 yards, 30 yards below him. And he got up so slow, like, man, what was that? Like, what just, what just, you know, what made that noise down there? And he's looking down the hill and I had this little pocket where I just, I, I followed his leg up, but there was oak brush still between me and him. And there was this little tiny gap where I tried to thread the needle through and pretty much did, but I hit him a little bit high right behind the shoulder. And he, he bumped out like maybe five yards. So now at this point, he's like 22 yards. He's just standing there and I can hear the blood hitting the rock. So I'm like, okay, he's pouring out of both sides. This is good. And just Again, because of my experience and what I've been able to do, knock another arrow, reload real quick, draw back, and now I can see exactly where I hit him. So I aim just a touch lower than my first shot, hit him again, and then he walked maybe six yards and just died. Like within a few minutes after that second shot hit him, he was dead within less than five minutes. It was one of the coolest things, but at the same time, I was like, holy cow, like how did it just happen so fast by the time I got up on that rock ledge? You know, 15 minutes felt like an hour until he got up and stood up. It felt like two seconds from the first shot to the second. <laughs> it was, it was just incredible. I really like that you heard blood pouring out both sides may sound gross to somebody, but like you just don't get to experience that almost every elk you shoot just takes off running. Uh, and so you don't like to actually shoot, have it hold still. And you can actually see like, okay, when an elk does get, double lunged and it's standing still like it'll pour out i know that um i was just editing my montana elk hunt you know the one you prayed with me before i I, um that one day hunt i shot this bull double long and i like i just as soon as i shot him and i never really do this but like you said experience i was like i'm just gonna go right up to where he was standing and see if i can find my arrow which i usually don't but the wind was going down and he kind of went uphill so i knew i was like He's not going to smell me. I'm just going to go stand right there. And my arrow picked up the arrow and I'm like, holy, like he stood after I shot him. He kind of ran five, 10 yards and then did a 180 and almost came back to where he, I shot him. I almost got another shot, but I didn't. But as soon as I got there and I saw like, 
I don't know, look at the desk at look at your desk that you're probably sitting at right now and just imagine that much area full of foam, pink, blood just everywhere. I was like I was like, uh okay, I'm gonna give him no time at all. And I didn't, and I didn't even have to follow tracks. I'm tr- my point is I don't know what ex- I never gutted him. I just I was by myself. I didn't gut him. I just peeled quarters off, uh, and I didn't have to gut him. I, I I could flip him. He was a big body pull, but I could get him flipped. Albeit took me ten minutes. I got him flipped over to do the other side, but just following blood. I don't know what I hit. I didn't do an autopsy. Did you do an autopsy on your bull to see what you hit on that first shot? Yeah, the first shot was high lung, almost forward. Like it was right behind his shoulder, but it was it was high lung. So just like the vital V, if people know what that is, you were just to the left of the shoulder blade and punched through both lungs. High, like below his back strap and spine, but just high lung. Yep, went through both lungs. Well, okay. on on his second side, I didn't. So I, I I gutted him just because it this was the biggest body bull I've ever shot in my life. Like I can usually yeah. move a bull and even just trying to gut him and get him like opened up so he could cool off. Uh, it was still cold and hot weather was coming in the following day in the afternoon. So I knew, okay, I have till tomorrow morning to get him out, get some help. Uh, but he was just a really, really, really hard bull to move. Okay. Usually a high lung, double lung shot. Like if it's not real, real high, but it's a high lung it takes a second for the, those lungs to fill up with blood. And although they usually die, they don't bleed a lot, but they usually die really, really fast. Uh, and I'm not talking no man's land. And, and some people would say there is no such thing as no man's land on an elk. I would argue there is a little. But uh, the the fact is that he was pouring out pretty fast. He filled up fast. What broadhead did you use? Uh, so I used the uh, iron wheel the hundred grain vented. Yeah. But the thing that was interesting about hitting him high and hearing it pour out because it was on a steep angle. So on his left side, it was still more center. It, for me, when I shot him, it looked really high. But then once I got up to him where he was at, it, it, it wasn't as high as I thought, but I, I didn't want to jeopardize going through Oak brush, getting a bad deflection in the shoulder or anything like that. So I took the shot that I knew I could hit him and pop two holes in him. And that's just my, yep. that's just the way I think. It's like, put two holes in them. If you can, get another one in them. And, uh, but when I heard the blood coming out, I knew it was solid. And then I just, I had that other shot and I just aimed literally two inches low for center. And I, I, it, it looked like I clipped part of his heart, but it was tough because by the time I got the guts out of him, it was pretty dark and I spaced out my headlamp. Um, but I was able to pull, when, when I hit that shot, he just hunched over like he got shot by a rifle. Like it was, it just hit him so hard and both arrows just, they blew right through him at a, at a short distance. And he just like hunched over, laid down and was done. It was, it was just one of the coolest, um, one of the coolest animals I've ever killed. Like just the way how, how it went down, throwing the rock. I think he was still waking up from his nap because like I said, the, the reason what gave him away is I thought I heard him like snore. I heard like a snort and I'm like, okay, he's sleeping and I'm going to have to wake him up. Yeah, he was dead asleep, man. That's really that's good stalking. Yeah, it it was awesome. So tell me about the pack out just briefly. I'm always I like hearing miserable pack outs, and then we got to get to your boys' hunts, man. So yeah, how was the pack out? So the pack out wasn't too tough. Um, my buddy Steve was he was doing a job. He lives uh, probably about forty minutes away from where I was at hunting, but he sent his son 
who's 19, 6'2", 190 pounds, dude's a beast, like just can run up a mountain. So I had youth on my side, and he brought one of his buddies that I'd never met. So to me, that's like the coolest thing. Like when you hear somebody has a bull down and your buddy calls you and says, hey, we need to go help this guy, to me that's huge. And that'll come into the story here in a little bit. But uh, so they came in. We took pictures in the morning, got some beautiful photos, and after we broke them down, I think we were from when we broke them down and when we stood up and packed out, it was only about two hours. So it wasn't it wasn't a hard pack out. It was all downhill. What made it tough was the oak brush. The oak brush initially for the first like forty five minutes was just we. I think it took us like forty five minutes just to get maybe a quarter of a mile just because of the oak brush. And then once the oak brush kind of slimmed down, it, it was awesome. Like we, we got on a game trail and then we just, we just grinded it out. So it was by far one of the e easiest pack outs I had this year. Yeah. Oak brush. You can't really penetrate it, dude. It's, it's no joke. Yeah. So kind of back to, uh, yeah, after we got the bull out, it, it last year, my pack out, I think it was right around like nine hours. But that was because I had only one other guy, and it was in some of the. It was I just shot a I shot this bull in a hole. But this year it was super nice to have these kids, and um, you know, and for them to be so excited about how and they just you know helping me get it out. One of the kids took two quarters. I took a quarter of the meat bag plus the head and the cape. So I I went out real real heavy. So even though it was only a few hours, it still sucked just because of the the amount of weight. But I'm I'm always stubborn if it's downhill, and I you know, we got heat coming up or whatever the case is. My big, my biggest priority is putting that meat in a cooler as soon as possible and getting them cool or just not letting them warm up. So that's uh that was one of the biggest things. Yeah. But it, it, it was super easy. So then after that, I still had a bear tag down there and I get a call from Aiden and he said, dad, like, you know, he was bummed out. Like he had a test that day. He was, it was killing him that he didn't drive down the night before he was going to, but he had a test that following morning. He goes, I'll, I'll get down there in the afternoon. I said, don't worry about it. I have two other guys that are going to help and we'll get it done. He said, but does that mean we can go hunt for my bull? I'm like, heck yeah. He goes, well, what about your bear? I said, forget the bear tag. I can go hunt bears with Dan if I want. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go and uh, we're yeah. going to, we're going to go and get yours. And so we had planned for like five days to go on his hunt. And, uh, I came home for a few days, just kind of got, got everything cleaned up, got the camper all ready and dialed in again, and away we went. So day one, the hard part about the unit that I was in, didn't hear a bugle, didn't see any rutting activity. Uh, you know, the bull on his hindquarters had, it, it literally was like a bear, two, two and a half inches of fat on his rump in certain places. Just unbelievable. Didn't even smell like an elk. Like, it was just almost like a moo cow. It, it was incredible. But when we got up on our first morning, we had seven bulls going off. It was last week. So I think it was the last 12 days of the season. So it's just right after muzzleloader, I believe is when it ended. Or we, I think we were two days into muzzleloader. So we get out there and uh, a lot of the muzzleloader guys are already packed up, went home into this over the, it's an OTC spot that it's my honey hole that I normally go to. And every time that we went out, morning hunts, evening hunts, middle of the day, we, we really don't do much but take naps or get caught up. But in this case, Aiden's doing homeschool uh, or learning online. So I got us a spot that we could camp at that had service to where we could go back to the camp middle of the day and he could do his work. So it worked out great. So technically, he wasn't missing any school. Uh, so every day we were out and we were in elk almost 
every morning hunt. And I think we had one evening hunt where we didn't hear him or see him. But it was like day three, my buddy Clint, who helped me pack out my bull last year, drew a tag uh, about two and a half hours north of where we were at, gives me a call, says, Santino, I got a bull down. And I looked at Aiden and I was like, hey, I know we just put these elk to bed, but we got to go. And he goes, what? I was like, yeah, we got to go. Clint got a bull. We got to go. And he goes, okay. So just like a trooper, we left elk, hiked our butts down the mountain, went and packed out his bull. Brought him some pizza, beer. I did like an Instagram story on that. It was really, really cool. But then we got his bull down in like four and a half hours or five hours. I think was I think we showed up around one and we were done by like six thirty. So about five and a half hours, we got his bull out, and that was really cool. He shot a really nice bull. But for me, I was more excited about Aiden being on that journey, and he was so excited on the way over there. Initially, it sucks because you're leaving elk to go help somebody get theirs out because your thought is like, I might be able to shoot a bull. Right. And then, uh, to leave that and you, you worked hard to get in that drainage and you just set up camp and then you have to abandon it to go help out a buddy. It was really awesome to see his attitude towards that. He loved it. He goes, dad, this is, this is great. Like, is this what you do every year? I'm like, well, yeah, it's what you have to do. If a buddy gets a bull down, usually you don't have to drive two hours North, but you know, it, it is what it is. If it's one of your close hunting partners, that's just like the code, right? You go and help them out. So that part for me and seeing Aiden, it was the first time I saw him put elk quarters on his back and just, he put two quarters on his back, uh, a hind and a shoulder and just started going. And that was really, really special. And I just said, well, so don't kill yourself because we still have to hunt tomorrow. So then we get back to camp, drive two and a half hours back to our camp. And it's like 930, uh, you know, we jumped in the shower, took a shower, cleaned up, got ready because we were like, we were just, you know, caked in sweat and blood from helping Clint with his bull. And then we were up again, 4:30 AM the next day back on elk. And he had, that was the next morning he had a bull that was bugling and we worked this bull for about two and a half hours. And we, we started moving and getting close. We were closing the distance, but basically what happened, this was your classic bulls bugling. You get a little bit closer. He's still a little bit farther away. So pretty much this bull just grabbed his cows and said, Nope, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And we finally got into, we finally, I said, I'm not going to call. We're just going to keep hiking towards him. I said, the risk is we could blow him out. But I said, I don't think he's going to get up above over this ridge. So we're going to, we're going to go all the way around, try to get level high ridge and maybe get above him. And when I thought we were at that point, about an hour and a half later, I hit this bugle and this bull cuts me off and he's within a hundred yards, but we are in some dark black, black timber and it's the last week. So we're at this point, we don't care. We blow him out. We want an encounter. So we start moving over and I set Aiden up and I just wanted to get one more locate on this bull. And we were in some of the thickest stuff. And I just hit this tiny cow call. And then all of a sudden I see antlers at like 50 yards running right at us in the middle. Of, you just hear trees breaking and he's coming in. He's not running away. He's coming in. And I, we're not set up and I'm a little frustrated because I, I just, I felt like I let Aiden down trying to put him in the right spot. But then all of a sudden Aiden knocks an arrow, doesn't even think about it. And he's killed several things with a rifle. So he has killing experience, but he draws his bow and I can't see what's going to happen with the shot. Let's the arrow go. I don't hear a whack. And I, I, I thought I heard it deflect, but I just didn't hear an impact shot. And then that bull ends up moving out, takes his cows and then still goes down the drainage and bugle. So I'm like, well, we need to look for blood. He goes, dad, I didn't hit him. So we were there for about an hour looking for blood and he goes, and then we found the arrow and it was a clean miss. So it was one of those deals that like, just after helping Clint pack out his bull, he gets a, he gets a shot encounter the next day. And then the, uh, that evening was slow. We went back in there 
think we pressured those elk too much. Next morning we go in there and Aiden has not killed an elk with his bow yet. So he, you know, if it's a cow, if it's brown, it's down, just put it that way. So we end up hiking up this ridge and then uh, right where we, we were probably about a quarter of a mile from where he, where he had had that encounter with that bull the day before. And these cows are walking right to us. Aiden just looks over at me. He's like, dad, dad. And I'm, I look over and I'm like, what? He goes, there's elk. They're walking right to us. And he had a smaller, like a calf at like 45 yards and uh, forever. I said, well, you, you know, you can, you can shoot that elk. He goes, no, I'm not going to shoot. I'm going to wait for, I'm going to wait for that bigger cow to step out. So this big cow, like looked like a lead cow comes out, huge body. And he drew and he got right on, he just got right on his anchor point and put his nose down right at the string to look through his peep. And right when he did that, she just walked off. So that was another potential close opportunity. And then after that, it was just kind of like, a cat and mouse game until the second to the last day of the season, which mind you, I told you we went for five days. So now we're at day 11 and I just told Aiden he was having so much fun. <laughs> we went for five days that he was, I, but it was funny because I think on day six, we had another call from a buddy that came and helped us with Clint's bull. I showed him a few drainages, not far from where we were hunting day two, he shot a bull. So the day after this cow, Aiden had this cow encounter uh, the next day, another guy dropped an elk and we went and helped him pack it out. And that was, that was a pretty easy pack out cause there was five of us. So it made it real, real simple. But then day 11 hits and he said, all right, dad, I think, I think I had my fill. Like we've been in elk every day. I messed up a few shot opportunities or it just didn't happen. And it's the, it's, I said, well, we still have tomorrow. He goes, now let's sleep in tomorrow. Let's pack up camp. And he goes, I'm good. I, he goes, I couldn't have asked for a better first time bow hunting with you. And I was like, okay, well, it's not over till it's over. And as soon as I said that we walked about 10 minutes down this, uh, we, we were just kind of hunting slow. It was our last evening. We were just working our way slow out of this, uh, drainage. And I look up in this open meadow, there's cows. And it looks like they're working down. I said, I think they're going to come down because there's a creek below. They're probably going to come get water. So I set Aiden up and I dropped back below him. I said, I'm not going to call though. I'm not going to bugle because they still weren't fired up. They weren't coming into calls. They were talking, but they just weren't running. I would say in the sense of like coming in and trying to challenge and all that. I said, but the herd's going to work into us. So sure enough, we had to move a little bit and I've taught Aiden like, Hey, if you move, this is how you move. Make sure you keep eyes on what you can see and then just move back. So we had to reset a few times. But it was probably 30 minutes later, he had cows walking anywhere from 20 to 60 yards right in front of him. And I'm thinking, okay, he's going to shoot one of those because it's the last day, it's whatever. But then all of a sudden, I heard a bugle, and the bulls in the very back pushing the herd, and then the herd kind of bumped, and I was like, oh, man, maybe he bumped him, maybe they saw him. And then I see Aiden draw, and I see antler tips. I can't see the shot. I was bummed out about that. But he hits that bull. I hear the hit. And I'm like, he either, he either pinwheeled an Aspen or he went right, you know, he put it right in the, in the boiler room. And then all of a sudden that bull runs right down past Aiden, right in front of me. And I can see an arrow sticking out of him. It's like center mass, center body. To me, it looked a little bit back, but it, it ended up being a great shot. But because of what happened with that other encounter and having the, you know, the clean miss, I wanted to make sure, like I've been here evening hunts, guys pressure it. They're worried about light. I'm like, you know what, let's just, we're going to just sit here for a while or we're going to back out. So we were, we weren't actually far from where we had parked to go into this, uh, to this drainage that we were hunt. We were on the last leg of it. I said, let's go grab something to eat. And he said, okay. So we grabbed something to eat, gave it over two hours. And when we came back, that bull was 90 yards from where we left him, 
Like he was, he was close. He was piled up. And that was one of the coolest moments to see. Cause I didn't, I didn't have to be there holding his hand. I think when you start hunting with your kids, I have a tendency and had have had a tendency to just tell him and coach him through every point. He was on his own. I was 70 yards behind him and he made it happen. And that was, that was really, really cool. Pinnacle moment of my hunting career to see him shoot, uh, an elk on his own with me behind. I didn't even have to call it. was, it was, it was awesome, man. And it was probably the best 11 days that I've had in a, in a long time on an archery hunt. Yeah. Kid shoots a herd bull on the last day in the last hour and, and lets cows walk and does it like a G, uh, dude, that's, that's so sick. And that's a really handsome Colorado bull. And you did the right thing, man. Let that bull. I mean, if you hit liver, I think a bull, even if you hit one long liver, a uh, couple hours, he'll be dead. Not far. As long as you don't pressure. And, uh, you did the right thing. It's a good call, dude. And I think that, uh, Elk are tough, man. They really are. And yeah, just, I've just seen so yeah, many of them yeah. get lost by by putting too much pressure. You see, like you're you're talking about the desk, the desk size blood pile. I have seen elk get up from that because they got bumped. You know they're going to die, but then you never find them. You know they they lost all that they could lose, and it 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 sealed up somehow through the fat and and their hide and all that. And it just it's you know they'll bleed internally. They're going to die, but if you can't find blood and you're in some of the thickest, gnarliest stuff, you know, it's like, what's the point? So for me, that's been like a new rule of mine, whatever, even if it's, unless you see them go down, then I'll like, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate as far as like, get another arrow in them, you know, keep shooting them until they're done. But when they run in dark stuff, that's, you know, crack snapple or crack snap pop type thing. And you know that they're, they know you're there. They know something happened. The last thing you want to do is pressure them. So that was uh, any time they run into something where I can't see them anymore, I just stop and I'm like, nope, it's not worth it. I'd rather talk to you for two yeah. hours and then let's go find a dead elk rather than uh, get too jumpy and then you'll never find them again. And then it turns into a sad story or, you know, it's, it's just a bummer when you lose an animal. I've done it. I, I totally agree. And this was the first year I didn't give a bull time. But if you ever do end up watching this video when it goes live, you'll see why. I've just never seen a, I've just never seen that much blood come out of an elk. And, uh, I'm also, I want to echo what you said about shooting as many arrows as possible until they're dead. Like that Wyoming bull I killed this year, I made a really sick quarrying away shot. Like that, uh, you can use light of in Wyoming and he's quartering away at 54. I hit him and I didn't get a pass through cause I hit the opposite shoulder, obviously on, on uh, that's what you aim for in that quartering away shot. So my arrow's just in it like diagonal, like just in this perfect angle and just the fletching sticking out, and I'm like, oh, you're done, and all his cows left across the creek, and I go around the corner, and he's still standing there, and he sees me, and I'm like, I had to, I had my, my slider at 54, and so I'm like, I think he's about 54, so I had to shoot him for 54 without ranging, and when I shot, he wheeled, he was looking right at me, and I got a double hamstring pass through, and that, I mean, he was already going to die, but like that, I hit, I hit artery Santino and holy blood. And I feel like I don't regret that decision. I know the bull would have died anyways, but you just never know. And I did, I mean, obviously when you put a broadhead through two hams, 
you, you lose a little bit of meat. Uh, but hindsight, I didn't lose that much meat and the bull really didn't go very far after that. And so, yeah, I think that's a good tip. Well, and it, again, it, it's it's scenarios, and when they when it's last light, and you know you're gonna it, if it would have been earlier, we probably would have moved up and just went real real slow. But again, I think when people lose, I see more bulls getting lost because guys are putting pressure on themselves because they're worried about losing the light. But it's called a headlamp, or it's called time, or you know. And right at this point, later in September, the temps were going to be fine, or I would have felt confident leaving that bull all night and not worrying about losing anything. Maybe maybe a little bit of neck meat, but I it, I think the temps were going to be down into the high 30s, like 38 degrees. It would have been just fine. So kind of, you know, I'll, I'll make Jaron's stories pretty quick. But Jaron last year, uh, he had a he had a first rifle season um, elk tag. And last year, he both the boys worked their freaking butts off. They hiked. They did really hard timber hunting. Most we didn't see a rifle hunter where we went <laughs> just cause we were getting after it like every day, just hucking miles doing, you know, you got it, you got the smoke bowl, so you don't have to be as stealthy, right? You're not trying to put a 28 inch piece of carbon behind their shoulder. Um, but nonetheless, after Aiden shot his bull, we got home that following week. I think Jaron had Monday and Tuesday off of school. So this is what we do. I went two days before, uh, or I'm sorry, it was three days before the season opened. So we went Monday and Tuesday, season opened up on Saturday, and we found elk. We went and scouted the week before. I just left this same spot um, for Aiden's hunt about a week and a half after that. You know what? Elk were going crazy. The rut was on. Bulls were fighting. It was awesome. And I said, Jaron, we're going to be here opening day, and like – it needs to happen. If it's going to happen, it needs to happen like day one or two because we're. This is probably going to last for the next few days. But after you put after a shot goes off, they're going to shut up again. So opening morning, we get in there the night before. We heard bugles. I'm like, okay, this is good. No cars. No, no, no. There was nobody around. So we end up hiking in, and first morning, we had six bulls around us. But again, when you're timber hunting with a rifle. It's tough when they're moving around in the rut. These bulls were running down ridges, coming up, and I, I, I did everything. I, I called a few times more for locate, but it was really, really tough to where we had two bulls on the first morning that were going at it. They were bugling back to each other. We were the third one locating in the back, but when we finally got up to them, they shut up for about, I don't know, it was like 20-some minutes. It was like around 20 minutes that they were just quiet, and it was weird. I'm like, okay, we did something wrong, or they got our scent, like, blew them out something and then we kept going down the ridge and working ourselves over what we didn't know if we would have just stayed on that ridge they were only 200 yards above us in the black timber these two bulls met up and we heard two crashes i'm like oh dang it they got our scent they blew out then we kept hearing the crashes and then i kid you not sun's sun's peeking through can't make this up this is like what you dream about you see two bulls pushing each other back and forth and they're just fighting and going after it so Jaron and I start hauling butt up this ridge. It took us about 25 minutes to get up there. By the time we got up there, they were done fighting, but they were also done calling. I think they were wore out. Now, and then about an hour later, they would locate back to us. So to sum it up, I felt like we were just kind of chasing our tail on the morning hunt. And it was really, really, really hot that day. So I said, well, we can stay out here, take naps, or we can go – you know, maybe run back to camp, get, you know, get a good meal on us or, and take naps there. But I don't think it, I said today, today might be shot because it went from 
I think that morning it was 38 degrees when we got up around five and by 10 o'clock it was almost 70. So the temps just yeah. started blowing up. So we ended up going back to camp and then we hiked back into that same spot. I think we got in there around four 30 and it was quiet for about the first hour and a half. And it was, we had about 40 minutes left of really, really good shooting light. And I said, you know what, why don't we work our way back to this Ridge? Same deal. We start walking back to this, to this Ridge where we usually start and call off of because it gives us opportunities to drop in multiple drainages. And I look up and there's four cows feeding out in this little hay park. And then they just start working their way down. And then I see a bull and I'm like, Jaron, there he is. And sure enough, man, just he puts he puts his gun up and Jaron with a rifle is just he he's stone cold. Like there's no coaching. Um, he shot that bull at like 125 yards. And he ended up kind of he when he hit him, he didn't drop him. Like that bull ended up actually running in the dark timber. And then we heard a crash. But same thing. We're losing light. So we waited, we waited for a little bit, but after he shot that bull, we were going to walk up to him a lot sooner just to try to grab photos and, and do that with some of the last light stuff. But then elk just started funneling in and one of the other bulls, he, <laughs> he could have shot. Like, I think he was like, it, you, you can't plan that stuff, but the, you know, the elk just started coming in and there was like two bulls going off. They started fighting and then it got dark and we're sitting there in the dark and we have elk completely around us. And Jaron was just looking at me like. I want to bow hunt. I'm like, well, yeah, next year you can bow hunt, but like you actually picked the right week to hunt because we didn't get this during archery season. We didn't really hear him talking this much and they were fighting right in front of us in the dark. It was incredible. So the, to sum it all up, seeing Aiden shoot his, his second bull ever, but his first one with a bow and then seeing Jaron shoot his first elk ever. And he got a bull that was, uh, you know, just coming home. I, couldn't be a happier guy. You almost feel like you could just roll over and go to heaven. Like you, you, what you wanted in your kids to be successful or what, what you dreamt about, like those are my dreams. And obviously they have, they have their own, but to see them both harvest elk, pack it out on their back and, you know, go help others and just really have a really incredible season. And to be able to experience that where I'm not an old guy with a cane and trying to keep up with them. Like it, it's just like, we're at this crossroads now where our fitness levels are relatively comparable at least when it comes to hiking up mountains and stuff like that and being able to do that with them is, you know these are going to be my best hunting partners for you know hopefully the rest of my life but um at least the next 10 years are going to be really really fun best season ever period best season ever yeah thanks for sharing dude that's i'm so proud of you as a dad i'm so proud of them it's just like boys becoming men and just the way it all went down, it's just, it's just perfect. And oh, your buddy Clint, I got to get him on this podcast too. That guy's a fit elk killer as well. But yeah, Santino, dude, this is one of the longer podcasts I've ever recorded. I knew it was going to be gold. I love it. Such good stuff in here. Where can people find more about Out of Bounds and what you're up to on socials? Uh, primarily for right now, Santino underscore Mantino is the handle on Instagram. That's pretty much where I, I put most of my stuff up there, but people can, you know, you can find me on, on Facebook. And if you, uh, you know, ever have needs or, you know, questions or any of the stuff that, uh, you know, of the conversation topics that we went over, feel free to reach out. I, that's, that's definitely been a turn in my life. I'm really, obviously my focus is in helping my sons, but, uh, don't mind helping out guys that come out to Colorado or need anything like that. But, you know, it's uh, 
it's like what you did for me, man. So, you know, feelings mutual. I, you know, I have some of the highest respect for you. And, um, one of the things that we started with when we started talking today is you said, well, what is that secret sauce? And one of the points that I wanted to bring up. So when I showed up, Dan invited me to bear camp, had no idea what I was getting myself into. Didn't know I was going to a rainforest to hunt bears. Didn't know I was going to be in a tree stand. And then even the first bear story, we'll have to save that for a different, um, maybe a different podcast at some point. But uh, right when I got into camp, Dan asked me the first morning we went out, and I don't know if you remember this. He said, are you going to kill a bear? I was like, yeah, I hope so. I just hope to see one. He goes, no, no, no. Like, you're not going to go hunt until until you give me the right answer. He goes, are you going to kill a bear? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's not how you say it. Are you going to kill a bear? I said, yeah, I'm going to kill a bear. I don't know if you remember that. And you said, that is the kind of confidence – well, you're just so like, I know how it is during hunting camp. I know that's one of your favorite hunts, but you know what? Like that is the type of confidence I go into any drainage. And honestly, because of you, like I'll ask my kids, I asked Aiden and Jaren, so you can kill an elk? And they're like, yeah. And if I don't feel like they, they have that confidence level in there, I challenge them because that 100% is one of the biggest things to being successful. Being able to do it every day is you have to tell yourself every day, like I'm going to do this. And if it doesn't happen, then, you know, it's out of your control, but you will get into more animals. You will, you will make better decisions, shot, shot decisions, and all that when you have confidence, in my opinion. Yeah. And confidence is earned friends. And that's why we preach that 365 approach and outwork the competition, do all the things, all the little things that they're not willing to do. Like you said, when they're sitting back eating turkey and drinking beer, you're out there scouting or you're staying fit, not getting fit, staying fit. You're not learning how to shoot. You're staying in shot-ready practice mode. And it's really hard to shoot your bow during season, man. Even this time of year, I think a lot of people struggle. So, uh, man, pleasure talking to you. We will have you on again because we have to tell that bell, that bear story, which is like the most Western bear story I have in my life. And I got some good ones. So uh, I can't wait for that. I appreciate you, Santino, guys. Thanks for listening. You have a lot of choices on podcasts. And remember – Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Santino, thank you for your time. That was a little bit of a longer one from my style, but I just enjoyed the heck out of that. And uh, I hope to have Santino back on again. And like I said, you can follow him or look into some of his stuff. Links are in the show notes. Um, right now, this time of year, guys, uh, it's cold. Maybe you're deer hunting. Maybe you're just an elk hunter and you're off-season mode. You should be training and staying in elk shape. You should be reflecting on your elk season and find out what you did well. But more importantly, what can you do better and put all your weaknesses at the top? Maybe it was your scouting. Maybe it was your gear. Maybe it was your fitness. Maybe it was your elk calling. Maybe it was your elk biology. You get the idea. Whatever it was, start working on it now. Start researching new units or units neighboring where you were or drainages close to where you were hunting and start e-scouting. Even though you don't know what tags you're going to have, separation is in the preparation. I appreciate you all. You got a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for picking us. We'll catch you on the next one.